Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Wyndham Garden Lafayette. From Chopsticks Restaurant in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Maida, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Hi, I'm Christian Mader. Welcome to Out to Lunch. We're getting a lot of what we need from the internet these days. I can pick up this handy iPhone, unlock it with my face, and get a month's supply of dog food delivered to me in two days. That's convenience. E-shopping is nothing new, even as it's gotten faster and offered more stuff. But over the last decade, better and faster broadband has made it possible to network services that aren't just about making it easier to be lazy. And that's well on display in the healthcare industry, where advances in telemedicine are tackling serious quality of life issues with fantastic results. Over miles of fiber optic cable, hospitals now come to you. Telemedicine programs bring doctors, nurses, and counselors where the patients are, at work, at school, or even miles from the nearest hospital, in areas where geography is a big hurdle in getting good healthcare. My guests today both work extensively in telemedicine, advocating and advancing its benefits to the workplace and to community health in general. Attorney Nadia Delahousie launched one of Louisiana's first teleradiology networks with her husband, a radiologist, more than 20 years ago. She served as the company's general counsel. Today, Nadia is a partner at law firm Jones Walker, where she's also the head of telehealth. Jones Walker is a sponsor of Out to Lunch. Nadia, welcome to Out to Lunch. It's great to be here. Thank you, Christian. Lafayette General Health is one of the major players locally in telemedicine. The system introduced a telemedicine clinic on-site at Stellar Settings in 2012, offering on-the-job healthcare access to the jewelry maker's 1,200 employees. Lafayette General's program has since grown to serve public school systems and Lafayette Consolidated Government, where it provides care for more than 2,200 government workers. C.N. Robinson has been one of the big reasons for Lafayette General's wins in that space. C.N. ran the Lafayette General Foundation for several years and now serves as the Health System's Executive Director for Innovation, Research, and Real Estate Investments. That's a lot of hats, C.N. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Okay, um, let's take a second to take stock of where telemedicine is today. It strikes me that it's much more common than perhaps people think, uh, yet it's still kind of a novelty. So, Nadia, as someone who has followed this space since people were using Netscape, how has telemedicine evolved? And how would you describe its stage of maturity? It's really an amazing experience to have been part of this growth for the last 20 years, because when we started out in telemedicine, trying to create a teleradiology network, we were trying to get a T1 line in our home. I don't even know whether or not a lot of this generation today, the younger generation, knows what that is. Um, the other is these PAC systems. It would take hours sometimes for us to be able to transfer images across this T1 line. Um, in addition, there was no compatibility between the various PACs. So it was a real, just wild, wild west. Um, we became very active, my ex-husband actually, he's my best friend, but he, we are no longer married, but we do have a wonderful business relationship. I still work to handle all of his work. Um, he and I both had a passion and we both had a vision. And at the time when we went into this area, radiography was not an area where reads were timely. I mean, he started at UHC or UMC at the time, and some of those films had been sitting there for a month. And it was horrifying because you missed cancer diagnoses. You, I mean, it was terrible. 
So at that point in time, the regulatory aspect of telehealth was really non-existent. You knew you had to get a license in every state, and therefore that's the first thing we did. We got a license in every state. Um, and then we started with the technology, which was not what it is today. The flip side over the course of 20 some odd years in the spectrum has been that the advancements in the technology have surpassed my wildest dreams. I mean, I have a master's in technology. I worked for the FCC. I, I went to Boston University. I was more interested in the technical aspects of telehealth than I was actually the legal. And I ended up going to law school um, after that. But my real interest was the technology. And to, I, in my wildest dreams, I never thought that we would be digital, that we would have the bandwidth, that we would have the opportunity to integrate telehealth. I mean, I'm overseas. Most of what I do is international telehealth. But the regulatory obstacles that I have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, even in the, in the international market, is wild. Every province is now putting together every, I mean, you have to go to every state. You have their licensure issues, their fees that need to be paid, applications. Then, of course, you have your whole technical components. But if you're, if you're practicing telehealth within the state, it's doable. When you start branching across state lines, whether it's in the United States or internationally, you end up really needing somebody in the legal profession that has some experience in this area, or else you're, you, you know, you're subjecting yourself to some real problems. Yeah, sure. Um, See, so yeah, let's let's get you in here a little bit. Um, so I, I'd like to turn to the hospital side of this. Okay. Um, so I think cynics would say that hospitals can make money off of sick people, right? It's a cynic's idea. Um, and a lot of success in telemedicine seems to be in reducing sick days and stopping problems before they get worse. So um, there's some, been some tremendous advances, I understand, in using it for giving rapid treatment to stroke victims, for example. Right. Um, so why does telemedicine make good business sense for hospitals? Okay, so first, as a community-owned non-for-profit health system and the only one that's locally owned in uh, Acadiana, um, no mission, no margin, right? So if we don't have a margin, we can't have a mission. Therefore, yes, we have to make money off of sick people, right, unfortunately. Um, for us, it's about consumerization of healthcare that's going on, right? We have to go meet folks where they are. Uh, so the first implementation of Stuller was really that. Uh, a jeweler who's working at Stuller, I mean, if you've ever been there, you have to go through metal detectors. It's a pretty long process. You get in the building. Now you're working. All of a sudden, you feel like you're getting sick. Well, then you have to take the time off. You have to go back out. You have to go back through all the process. And it was a day. And so what we said was, well, if we can put something inside where we have a nurse on the head end dialing into a physician's clinic or a nurse practitioner's clinic, we're going to be able to treat the people where they are and create some operational efficiency. In addition, um, we are moving uh, to a, from a per-click charge in healthcare from volume-based purchasing to value-based purchasing. And with that, we get paid on how successful we are in treating that person. Right? And if we can use telemedicine to treat them in the situation that they're at, perhaps at home, without having them to come back to the health system, without coming back to the hospital, we actually see benefit from that, both from uh, uh, the volume standpoint of us being full at the inn all the time, but also from the standpoint of the way we will be getting paid in the future, which is based on metrics that are how well do we keep people well. Um, so for us, telehealth really started, again, when we started with uh, Matt Stuller and Stuller uh, and getting that taken care of. We moved to LCG. 
Uh, we started uh, looking at schools, right? Again, kids who were not getting care um, and meeting them where they needed to be met, which is in, in, in the classroom. Uh, and we call it butts and seats is our, our affectionate term. So if you're able to treat a child non-infectious, they're infectious, they get a call to mom and dad or mom or dad, they get to go home, but they're non-infectious and you can keep them in the classroom, they have more learning time. And what we saw on our pilot projects is, with these telemedicine units, seat time increased, learning outcomes increased, and even more importantly, some of these parents who are hourly wage workers got to stay at their place of employment and continue to earn. So it was a very, I think, virtuous cycle. Uh, we also started moving into uh, telemedicine within the jails. Uh, so we're now helping um, with uh, treating uh, different inmates in different situations telemedically. And beforehand, I don't know if you've ever been to UMC, now UHC, you would come into the emergency room and there'd be folks sitting there in their orange or their stripes and, and chained up because they were coming for a healthcare visit to our health system. And so it was very intimidating to walk into an ER and see those folks sitting there. But if we could treat them at the jail without having to incur the cost of two deputies, the time to take them over, time to sit there. So what we found is telemedicine and telestroke we have for our, um, our hospitals that are a little bit more rural. So we have telestroke out at Acadia General Hospital. We have telestroke at Kaplan. We have it over at St. Martin Parish, St. Martin Hospital. I mean, being able to deliver those services in underserved communities is the other important piece to this because it's very hard to get an interventional neurologist or a neurologist to come out to these rural communities and have them full-time there serving those patients and when we can serve them from a centralized location and have telestroke covered telepsychiatry covered telecardiology covered we're able to extend the hospital system and our services outward okay so I feel like I've skipped over a very basic thing here, right? Which is, what does this even really look like? I mean, what, what does the treatment actually look like? I think for some people, they're hearing, I can see a doctor from miles away. How does that even work? So, to, uh, if you don't mind, if I could kick off, and I'll talk about, like, primary care all the way up. So, right now, we have a, an application called Health Anywhere. Anybody can go on, either in the iTunes or out to Play Store, download it. From primary or urgent care, you can be seen through your phone through this application. So it's literally you come in, you put your insurance information if you have it. If you don't, it's a $45 copay, and you get a virtual visit on your phone with your camera, right? And physicians are trained to listen as their primary tool for diagnosis. And so there's a good number of things we can do just in an urgent care way that we can do right through the phone right now. But when you start to get into the specialties, you do have specific... Um, uh, devices at the bedside or devices in the room that are then connected to what looks like a cart and back in the day the cart was this big old box right a big old computer that was really hard to wheel around nowadays it's like a surface pro 4 on a wireless network that has peripheral devices so you can uh, listen to a heartbeat look in the ear maybe do an EKG there's all these different devices that are connected to that cart and then that information is being sent to a nurse practitioner or physician on the other end who can see all of this on their screen in a dashboard like a format and be able to do that diagnosis. We've even even had physicians tell us that telemedically they actually can hear better with the device as opposed to their own stethoscope that they're using at the bedside. So it really depends upon the modality if you're urgent care or if you're at a stroke it's it's really dependent upon the disease. 
So, I mean, you've touched on this a little bit already, Nadia, but, you know, it sounds like we're, we're getting further. Uh, the people are going to be more comfortable with this, but there remain some serious regulatory hurdles. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about the kind of work that you're having to do in order to, to make sure that the technology doesn't sort of get held back by the system itself? You know, people come to me and say, why haven't you gotten a national license in place? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? Let me tell you, the American Telemedicine Association has celebrated 25 years. And, and they have been on Capitol Hill twice, I mean, continuously in Washington. But we've had summits, we've, we've been beating at the bush, you know, for a long time, at the government for a long time. Recently, in the last um, year, Medicaid has Medicare has finally integrated the originating site to include the home setting. So that's huge. The FCC is now offering and subsidizing and doing pilot programs. They just committed $100 million to expanding access to areas that would not otherwise have connectivity. So you can actually have the physicians and the hospitals that want to do the work, but if you don't have the connectivity and the, the bandwidth, you can't get the, the services in place. the licensing is so challenging. It I is. I mean, it's amazing. The, the licensing issue, for me to get, to, I can go across borders, okay? And, and, and now we're working on the federation of you know, physicians. You have different rules with respect to nurses licensing regs with respect to nurses versus physicians versus EMTs versus physical therapists versus dentists versus, I mean, it is crazy. From a regulatory legal perspective, if you don't make sure that you're complying with the regulatory aspects of this, then you could find yourself before a state licensing yes, board. That's right, and, in a lot of trouble. And right? I've had to defend those. And ignorance is no excuse. Right. And in today's world, it, the DOJ has come out very, very clearly that it is going to hold telehealth to the same standard that it's currently holding any form of health care. And that includes fair market compensation. It includes anti-kickback, um, Stark, law, Stark uh, yeah. and, and you have to be incredibly careful when you're negotiating with smaller hospitals in rural areas because they don't have the money to be able to put up, for example, the, the carts and the equipment necessary to integrate. So you have to structure these deals in a way that it is not a kickback or perceived as a kickback. And a lot of this, you know, is, is still not clear in terms of what you can or what you can't. In the past, we've always felt GOJ is going to give us a little bit of leadway because we're trying to get into a spectrum that is going to benefit everyone. But the, so the, much, the outcome right. is that it's not. It's coming down very hard on the telehealth. Everybody thinks that once you become a doctor or a nurse, you're licensed anywhere in the United States or wherever. You're not. You have to go state by state to get your licensure. And so we had the same thing happen, which was, so say we roll out our telemedicine platform and our doctors are, and maybe nurse practice are doing the initial coverage, but maybe we have to have a rollover. Wonder, wonder if there's all of a sudden this influx. So we, we have a contract and that contract has physicians that have to be licensed in Louisiana in order to take the call, the telemedicine visit originated from Louisiana. So there's these regulatory- Not know, only licensure, but as you know, <laughs> the credentialing and privileges, privileges. That's right. at the facility right. in addition to the licensure. Yes, ma'am, that's right. Healthcare's hard. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> it's a great area for lawyers, I can tell you. <laughs> I'm Christian Mater, you're listening to Out to Lunch. We're talking with Nadia Delahousie of Jones Walker and C.N. Robinson of Lafayette General Health. We'll be back after just a quick break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. 
I'm talking with attorney Nadia Delahousy, a partner and head of telehealth at Jones Walker, and Cian Robinson, executive director of innovation at Lafayette General Health. Nadia and Cian, this is the part of the show we call the interview. Uh, when you own or run a business, you inevitably have to hire people. And when you do, you only have a limited amount of conversation with a potential hire to decide if this person is going to be a good fit for you and your company. Uh, and lately, there's been an interesting trend in the job interview where instead of asking the basic job-related questions, employers ask job applicants questions that go beyond their resume and test their ability to think through a problem. I have a list of 16 of these probing interview questions in front of me. I'm going to ask you each to pick a number between 1 and 16. I'll ask you the question, and I want you to tell me how you'd answer it. See, and since you seem the most scared of it, I'm going to ask you to go first. Perfect. Okay, so just pick a number between 1 and 60. Uh, 7. 7, okay. If you could trade places Uh with any other person for a week, famous or not, living or dead, real or fictional, who would it be? Okay, so I'm going to really show you my age a little bit. Uh, And uh, if you remember the, the, the TV show Family Ties? Right, and there was Alex Keaton, uh, the character in there, who was the kid who was the the, the, Republic, the Republican in a family of liberals. You know, that was me during the 80s and 90s, living in, in New Jersey, uh, growing up in my family. And so, if I had to train places with anybody, I'm a Ronnie Reagan Republican. I would love to have been President Ronald Reagan or President C. N. Robinson for a week, just to see that that position of power that you're in and the responsibility that comes with it and the sort of machinations of the sausage making that occurs on Capitol Hill, just completely fascinating to me. And I, I don't care what job you're in, there are always aspects of politics that creep their way in. And I'm not talking external politics that we read about, you know, in the paper or on whatever feed you're on. I'm talking about the interpersonal politics and relationships that you have to manage on a day-to-day people basis. People, not only is healthcare hard, people are wiggly and they're hard too. And trying to create those relationships, I think, is the most rewarding thing that I have, even to this day, or I would have had as President Ronald Reagan. Nadia. Can you pick a number between 1 and 16? I'll pick 2 since I have 2 kids. 2, all right. If you woke up and had 2,000 unread emails and could only answer 300 of them, how would you choose which ones to answer? Well, I first go through my emails every morning. That's about how many I get. Okay, <laughs> no, wow. Not really, I'm yeah. kidding. Um, and a lot of those are spam, so I immediately delete all the spam. Um, even though we have every device known to try to avoid spam, <laughs> you still get it. Um, I also prioritize subject matters that I know are hot areas by flagging them. For example, cases that are urgent, that have really timely turnaround responses, I flag those. Any email that's coming from that individual is going to be flagged and put at the top of my list. Um, I also have a secretary and I have my secretary. I, I, I have three calendars. I have a secretary. I, I mean, I don't want to ever miss a deadline. I don't want to ever not respond. And I try to respond to all my emails every day, even if it means staying up until two, unless it's a you know spam or somebody that's not directly focusing on me in some needed way. Um, but, but it is difficult in today's world to be able to differentiate between the junk and the true meaningful communications that we have to respond to timely. I mean, when I talk about telestroke being timely, much of what I do is timely as well. If I miss a day and I'm supposed to file a pleading, I don't get an extension. 
the prescription periods run, I'm out of luck. My client is going to be detrimentally hurt. You know, so, so everything that we do, I take very seriously. So what would you, so in asking that question to an interviewee, what do you think you'd be trying to get? Well, you know, when I, I do interview quite a bit for Jones Walker, and I have to tell you that I don't stick with the traditional questions. I like to think, I like people to think out of the box. Look, I was a theater major. I had never thought of myself as a lawyer. I was, I, I, I went into advertising and I got tired of people in advertising changing my creative work. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna go figure out what the FCC regs are. I'm gonna go How to law school. How do you make school. the jump from theater major to FCC expert? Don't ask me, my parents are still looking at me like, how did you get where you are? Because wow. I was the one that said, because I have two sisters that are lawyers, and I was the one that said, there is no way I'm going into law. And I'm the one that loves it. But it's being open and passionate. And I went into the well, I went into communication technology, and then I started realizing there's a whole. And then I worked for the FCC one summer, and then I realized, you know what? I'm not going to get where I need to get at the FCC. I need to be in. A, I'm, I need to be beating up on the legislature. I need to get involved in the politics yeah. of what I'm passionate about, which at the time was technology, the advancement of technology, and the integration of telehealth. Look, I have a father that's an OBGYN. He was the only OBGYN in a rural area for my entire childhood. Right. I listened to him leave in and out the house every 24 minutes, it seemed, to go deliver a baby. And I thought from an early age, there has got to be a way my father can remotely monitor his patients so he can be home with his family. As I mentioned earlier, when you talk about a T1 line and you look at what we're doing today, it is, it's like going from the, it's, it's like going from the United States to Mars in a car. That's I mean, right. it, 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 it exactly really is, right. is that, is that it, it blows my mind. And I've been in this world and fascinated with it. I go to the, every conference I can just to look at the technology. And I am every year blown away at what advancements have been made. And I'm excited about what the FCC just committed to. To build on what you're saying, Nadia, we've been able to uh, get um, these USDA grants that extend telemedicine, allows to extend it to rural communities. Well, we've, we've had m multiple successful grants. Um, but what's gone on is grant number one, when we write it, and it takes 18 months to get it approved, in 18 months, what we asked for in the grant has changed by the time we get the award. We're to the point where we don't even need carts necessarily anymore. What we need are software licenses to deliver the telehealth on a platform of the school's choosing. And where I'm keying on, Nadia, is yours. The policy isn't keeping up with the technology oh, yes. progression. And the no. delivery. Is and, the policy coming on, on a T1 line, I guess? It is. It, 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 it is. is. It's okay. getting there. It's getting so. there. We're finally making <laughs> our... We, we have enough physicians and enough hospital systems that gone, have gone out there and put their own dollars into the investments yeah. and have shown the, the, the data that needed to, to be placed in front of Congress and in front of the FCC and in front of, you know, CMS to get the, 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 the law changed. But I also want to bring up AI, artificial intelligence, and the integration of that into to what we yeah, do. Yeah, that's right. And that's a whole nother area that can essentially take everything you started this program out with, with you know, your iPhone can face recognition. If, if we can, you know, you have security issues, you have privacy issues, but there is so much that goes into how a patient is going to respond to health and, you know, making lifestyle changes, particularly if they have a chronic medical condition. And the more you have knowledge about their lifestyle 
and their stress points and all of the information that we can collect from Google, from so many sources, if we could, you know, and there's a lot of controversy about that, but if we could integrate that into the treatment plan, we would, we would be able to help those individuals deal with those life stressors in a way that you wouldn't know. I mean, your doctor's not going to ask you, okay, so how much credit card debt do you have? You know, would, would, I mean, you just, you know, you don't, you don't, you, it wouldn't be appropriate. They don't have the time, but there is a way for us to integrate a lot of what the patterns of people spending it all sorts of things can be picked up on and utilized in healthcare. And, and Nadia is exactly right. That's why you have Amazon creating Haven. That's, That's right. why you have Walmart getting into it. You have CVS Aetna merger. Heck, Best Buy just announced with Geek Squad that they're going to come to your house and install Internet of Things, Bluetooth devices, all connect to your phone to send that information back. We're in an information-rich age with all this data that's being collected, and that integration and the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing, algorithm development, that's truly the next phase of where healthcare is going. And that's why with our Health Innovation Fund too, our second venture fund, we've primarily focused on nothing but digital health and digital healthcare and how, to, how that, that's going to change the way we deliver Healthcare. And, and just really quickly add to that, I'm sorry, but what I love is the pattern recognition because it reduces human error, physician error. For example, in, in radiology, That's a great example. Um, they, they have patterns right. and, and it, can be, it can pick up non-detectable um, problems within a particular CT, MRI that a physician's eye wouldn't. And it, it can put the physician on notice and the hospital system on notice, you know, the caregivers on notice of areas of concern that they need to watch out for. And it allows the physician to operate at the top of their license. So a lot of these images can be read by AI and flagged, and then the radiologist can operate at her top of her license, reading only those that are problems instead of everything else. Well, it's been said a thousand times, guys, the future is here. Uh, literally anything can be on demand, and you're not likely to come across an invention that isn't just over the horizon. Of course, a good concept is nothing without results, and it's clear that when it comes to making an impact, telemedicine is beginning to prove out as a science fiction made reality that can really change lives and make the world a better place. Sian and Nadia, it's been great chatting with you both. Uh, thanks for joining me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been attorney Nadia Delahousie, partner and head of telehealth at Jones Walker, and Cian Robinson, executive director for innovation, research, and real estate investments at Lafayette General Health. Nadia and Cian, thanks for the conversation. You can learn more about Nadia's work and follow Cian's madness by following the links at our website, itsacadiana.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Morrell. Our researcher is Ann Christian. Today's show is engineered by Blake Longlinet. You can listen to this show and to past episodes about To Lunch Acadiana wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify. And you can find all of our podcasts at itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com, on our It's Acadiana Facebook page, and on Instagram at Out to Lunch Acadiana. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. I'm Christian Mader, editor of The Current, Lafayette's community-owned nonprofit newsroom. Thanks for joining me. For more great stories and conversation, check out thecurrentla.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'll see you here again next week around the lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch is recorded live at Chopsticks Restaurant in Lafayette, where East meets Southwest. Authentic Chinese cuisine prepared with fresh local ingredients. The Out to Lunch Acadiana theme music, Encore Monsieur, Nice Guy, is written by Mitchell Foreman and performed by Mitchell Foreman and Andre Michaud.
Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Support for Out to Lunch Acadiana comes from the Wyndham Garden Lafayette, located off Pinhook near Cali Saloon. Wyndham Garden Lafayette is a pet and family-friendly hotel with reception space for large and intimate events, free parking, free Wi-Fi, and a free shuttle within three miles that includes the airport and downtown restaurants.